Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Christopher Mookie-Gana-Harrington, joined by the patron saint of professional wrestling, the man himself from the Empire State, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm great. My uh, my official shirt was seen live at the Cow Palace. All the eyeballs are all over it now. I've, I'm about to sell one shirt via direct message as we speak. Are you serious? Yes. Wow. Yes, I'm serious. So uh, clearly, um, we're just uh, the money will follow the eyeballs, and right. uh, the Cow Palace show was a roaring success for your brand, which is really all. The New Japan expansion in America is about is yes. whether or not ESW, specifically Brandon Howard Thurston, is selling more shirts. Yes, yeah, so I would like to thank Harold Mage. Thank you, Uncle Uncle Harry. <laughs> and yes, the uh, New Japan had a big show. In uh, I watched it through my Sling uh, free trial subscription. We'll talk about that on the paid show. Uh, there was, of course, an MSG show for WWE. There's Ring of Honor attendance stuff. There's median ages. There's pounces. There's hot dog eating contests. There's UFC. There's a lot of stuff going on, but that's not the subject of this week's show. We're going to talk WWE history. We're going to do a, a lesson for everybody, but I want to know first, how are you doing, Brandon? Uh, I'm doing okay. Um, no wrestling this weekend. Uh, I've been working out a lot, getting myself back in shape. I'm in the death throes here. I think this is a. Uh, I'm in my early 30s. I'm about to turn 33, and um, I've got one last run. I've got just a few years left in my physical prime here. I think, and uh, I've got I've got to swing for the fences here while there while there's still time. You posted a picture on your Instagram the other day where you were covered in some kind of red jelly substance. I assume that's the ketchup packets that wrestlers often use uh, to fake blood. Um, what, what year was that picture from? That was just this, uh, we talked about it right after it happened on this very show. So not that long ago. 
Um, okay, I was going to say, you looked in very good shape in that picture, and then when I commented on it, you said something about how, because I said, you know, Dollar Shave Club does sell shaving cream, and you mm-hmm. said, oh, they weren't a sponsor yet at that time, so mm-hmm. I wasn't sure exactly when that picture was from. I think it was about a year ago, um, okay. and we talked about it. I, I, I got, like, moonsaulted on. I thought there was nothing wrong, and then I, I, I thought my opponent was bleeding, and it turned out I was bleeding from the back of my head and uh, mm. had a handful of blood and just put it right across my chest. Yeah, it's a good picture. I like it. Yeah. But um, not safe for work. But yeah, did you have a good July Fourth? Yeah, it was fine. Uh, I saw fireworks. I went for a walk. How was yours? Um, it was like World War Three uh, by my house. Yeah, it usually it's, is. Yeah. This, well, St. Paul decided to cancel their fireworks this year in a, a cost saving measure, hmm. and so good. that only fueled the fury in my neighborhood for more fireworks. And so it was probably till midnight, just going going loud and proud. Mm. And uh, so I was home with the dogs, trying to make sure that they didn't freak out too much. Yeah, and they actually were pretty good. I'm not a big fan of uh, of explosions. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm glad that there's no no more pyro in WWE. I'm happy about that fact. <laughs> there was the story Cornette told on his uh, podcast about how Vader apparently wandered under the Ross at one time when the pyro was about to go off and nearly concussed and killed himself yeah. from the, the sonic booms that it was causing. Cause I mean, everybody says this, but you don't realize how loud that stuff is until you go to the show. And like, oh ev- yeah, absolutely. And like, sometimes there'll be like an explosion. Like, like I remember like when Ryback, obviously Ryback doesn't work for WWE anymore, but like when Ryback would do his entrance, there was like, there was no explosion, like visual explosion or fire or anything. There was just a really loud bang. And the, there's no like visual cue for this or anything, but anyway, like there's all this. Well, and noise. I would even say if you're bringing a family and you're bringing young kids, that can be very upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Stop it with the pyro. Come on. But it's yeah. it's uh, it just it, it makes me jump and and I'm, I get startled. And uh, I'm I'm a I'm a very uh, uh, upsettable pro wrestling fan, and I need I need no pyro at my events. I need excellent chain wrestling. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunities here for um, uh, us to get upset yes. at different things because we are fragile constitution professional mm-hmm. wrestling commentators. That's right. But that's okay because uh, today we're going to talk about WWE's very, very interesting last six complete yeah. months. So we're going to talk about the last six months here for free on this show. And then there's, there's a few other topics like the New Japan Kyle Palace show on WrestleNomics Premium. On, uh, at patreon.com slash russellnomics but here for free on audio boom on all major podcasting platforms we're going to talk about the last six months in WWE history which i think were a pretty big deal last six months as far as not not just maybe WWE history but their history as a business but just the way that the pro wrestling industry is changing and the way the media is changing and the way that WWE is able to get an enormous value for their tv rights and uh a number of other things that happen, such as Saudi Arabia and Ronda Rousey coming to WWE and things like that. And let's be clear, this is subsidized 100%, much like the TV rights subsidize a lot of things in WWE. This program is subsidized by the paying patrons over at patreon.com slash Russellomics. And so if you enjoy this, you should sign up and support that work over there because you're paying for us to do work like this. We would not be doing this kind of work, this depth. And and for all the uh, patrons, you get 
access to the notes. So you can actually follow all the press releases, all the spreadsheets, all the, the graphs, the charts, everything that we're doing here. We have it all broken out for the, for the subscribers. So we hope, hope that we do see people kind of uh, migrating to that to support what we're doing and just understand that you're getting the, uh, you're getting the benefit with your, your freeloading, as they might say, the free rider problem here. But I have a lot of trust in the uh, wrestling consumption public that they will support the products and the, the items that they enjoy. And uh, hopefully we'll meet a lot of you and we'll be, of course, um, at All In. And we hope to meet a lot of people there. So if you're a, a new listener, if you're a continuing listener, or you're a, a lapsed listener, we hope to see you for those of you that are at All In. But let's talk about the history of WWE in the last six months here. Because yeah. like Brandon There's said, it's been fascinating. Um, There's going to be a lot of much- sound, sound bites on this that yeah. I'm going to put in here live. I've got... If you are a subscriber, you'll see at the top of our notes I have, are you ready for a challenge? Because I'm going to put a lot of audio in here, a lot of sound bites. Hopefully it sounds okay. And uh, we didn't talk about this in a pre-show meeting, but I, I put this tweet from Missy Hyatt up here at the top of the dock. Where she yeah, said, what was that about? I, I didn't know what the context was. Yeah, sometimes I just put put you know Easter eggs in here for you, Mookie, just for you to discover. I did read it through it. Just it's it's Missy Hyatt saying, you know, she's listening to Meltzer when he was on the Jericho podcast, and she noted she's been li- reading the Observer since 1986 when she was in the UWF, and uh, just how much it's educated her and um, motivated her to keep up with the business and broaden watching different styles. Yeah, and uh, and I think I think that's I would like very to, true. Yeah, I would like to think that we provide something like that for whether you're a consumer of wrestling, maybe a worker of wrestling. Maybe uh, even a member of the bourgeoisie of of professional wrestling. Uh, I I hope that we, I think that's the highest thing that we have to provide here is like some sort of uh, insight into a a business that is very, I think somebody said this to you on Twitter recently, a a business that is very shrouded in secrecy and and non-transparency and things like that. So I hope people are able to learn something from WrestleNomics. I think that's a that's a, a fair goal. And I think the importance of it is when you can focus on a subject like the business and the economics and the strategy of what the pro wrestling organizations are attempting to do with their market development plans, their social media investments and, and their new technology initiatives, you have the opportunity to kind of make sure that it creates a clear and and cohesive narrative. And there are times that I think something like the wrestling observer sometimes gets caught up with um, the fact that it's both trying to do the commentary on what it's happening here from a storyline standpoint, as well as touching on business things, but not always with metrics or consistency in a way that makes a lot of sense. Like if you listen to all of Berrios's talks and Brandon and I pretty much do, you learn the messaging of what he's saying. And a lot of times what you'll read in the observer is a distilled version of the talk that is second or third hand and doesn't always capture the actual relevance of what he's saying as much as what somebody else thinks is relevant. And, um, I, I just think, you know, we, we're not getting people tweeting at us angry about seven star ratings and whatnot. So at, at least that it helps kind of keep us focused and uh, eyes on the prize. Yeah. We, uh, so, we we haven't got any angry tweets yet about me inducting um, George Barrios and Michelle Wilson into the WrestleNomics Hall of Fame, but I'm sure I think those the only are question has been about the uh, physical location and the uh, the opportunity for patrons to vote in future elections. That's true. We are, we are not opening any of the voting though. I'm keeping that all to myself. Um, not sharing any any of that power. 
just to be clear, even I am not uh, involved in the balloting process. Yes. Uh, that is how secretive this is. Yes. And, and don't try to start a revolution or any, any sort of democratic movement, because I'll just take credit for that, too. That is true. I was going to say, as a socialist, uh, Brandon believes the votes belong to the people, but he is the people. So his vote should count supreme. So anyway, so we're going to talk about the last six months in WWE history. And uh, we're going to start here. We've got, I've got a number of, just so that we can pull back the curtain a little bit, I've got a number of dates here throughout the last six months. And in our notes, there's links to press releases and whatnot. And we'll go through all these you know, important moments over the last six months in WWE business history. Um, but if we go back to early January, or just, just the end of 2017, the stock price was trading at $31. Um, and of course now, at least as of July 5th, it's over $75. Uh, it might be even a little bit higher than that. Um, so I invite you to, to go back and imagine you're Vince McMahon and the TV rights negotiations are ongoing here at the beginning of the year. The India and Jinder Mahal experiment was a failure. You had to cancel one of your India events. Everyone's criticizing you about Roman Reigns and how you don't, you're not in touch creatively and you're throwing Roman Reigns down everybody's throat. And uh, your, your son-in-law is overshadowing, overshadowing you creatively. NXT is fantastic, everyone says, and Raw and SmackDown suck. And, uh, and someone even started a podcast to criticize your every business move. Yeah, it, the, it, there's some challenges, I guess, there at the beginning of the year for WWE. But uh, by the end of it, Vince McMahon uh, prevailed as he always does. So, And keep in mind, Vince had liquidated, uh, you know, was it close to $100 million of stock? I think it turned out to be 90-something million yeah. uh, by the time the actual stock price that he used was mm -hmm. brought in. And that was just in, what, December of that year? On December 21st, he sold about $100 million worth of stock, but still maintains 83% yeah. of the voting power, 42% of all shares. So he's very much still in complete control of WWE. Yeah, but but just to put in context too, that Vince is coming into this that he liquidated some of his holding in December, and now it's January, and and the stock's actually up just a little bit, up to thirty one bucks. But it's it's a per it's a very um, precarious time for WWE because this new set of negotiations has to go well for them for them to set up their foundation for the future. And you can make a lot of arguments that they, they pushed for a while that the future was India, the future was China, the future was the network. And it's it's interesting to say, okay, what is going to be the focus of this company in this year? WrestleMania is going to be held in New Orleans. We're going to go to the Superdome. Um, but we're not sure exactly where all of the fuel for growth is going to be. And a lot of people are saying, well, maybe this is going to be the year where new media takes off in such a way that, you know, worrying about television is not the big deal. We should be worried about the next round of things. So on January 9th, um, was there, I, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to look here uh, on the, the January 2nd. That was just a snapshot in time. There wasn't a, a news article or anything yeah. that day, right? Yeah. Go for January 9th. Okay. Next VR and WWE brings fans closer to the action with virtual reality. And I, I, I bring this one in because this is a, a press release that you'll find. And, and what I did is I did go through all the corporate press releases on the website. I think that's important is that a lot of times um, the stories that we're talking about are not always the stories that WWE PR is putting out. And also there are times where people say, well, why isn't WWE doing more with blank? 
And the reality is sometimes they're doing more with blank and you just don't ever hear about it. So they are doing some stuff with VR. They are doing some stuff with um, augmented reality programs and things of that nature. But you just don't hear a lot about it. And and there's that kind of open question of, you know, maybe five years from now, maybe three years, maybe 10 years from now, this will be a bigger deal. Um, and so I just kind of mention whenever these things are happening, because WWE is, A, I think, investing in some of these these companies and these initiatives. And B, they are continuing to very quietly do these technology deals. Uh, so I'll be kind of curious to see if there is a time when, um, you know, it really explodes and it's happening. But we're seeing a little bit more of this. I remember when I was at Access, I think I saw a little bit more VR stuff. And, of course, there's the, the famous photo of Vince McMahon with the crazy VR goggles on. Yeah. So in some ways, I always feel like this is the um, the WWE Studios turnaround story where it's always coming every year. And it's never really hitting, but um, maybe, well, I, I maybe it won't become a big deal. I think that's the issue with virtual reality in general is that, wow, there's this cool technology, but nobody's really sure how to use it or monetize it or sell it yet. And then also the question about what platform or owner will be the driver of it. Will it be a Google Glass type thing? Will it be a Sony VR goggles? Will it be a, you know, will it be the cell phone companies? Will it be the augmented reality with the really cheap cardboard um I can't remember what it, what the, the the cardboard. Maybe it's just called cardboard, where you know you just kind of put your phone and put these glasses in, and then it kind of works as that. You know, it, it's unclear what what platform it will be and whether how long will people want to experience it yeah. too. Like, can you actually watch a pay per view in a virtual seat, or will that just give you a headache for being there for an hour to four hours watching that? Uh, on the and I also mentioned July or January 9th because that's my birthday and that's also um, around the time that they did the uh, WWE Network presentation back in 2014 because um, I remember very clearly it was my birthday and sitting there and watching the whole presentation with uh you know DX coming out and everything else happening at Las Vegas probably not a coincidence um, they did it on your birthday yeah yeah the the I think they did the actual press conference either on my birthday or made the announcement for the press conference on my birthday one of the two mm-hmm. um january 10th wwe and astro extend their long-standing partnership in malaysia uh astro one of the few places in the world where you can get wwe network as a linear stream much like osn much like canada um but just i think we talk so much about wwe tv deals it's specifically in the uk us india and um we don't always remember the fact that they actually do have many deals around the world and they're constantly announcing them. And so it's always intriguing to me to see, you know, just how many of these deals are coming in every year. And so, and how many of them are being renewed. And so Malaysia, they had their renewal on January 10th of this year, for instance. And then on January 16th, we had BTIG's dream. The mixed match challenge debuted on Facebook watch uh, from January 16th was the first episode on it. And there was a weekly episode all the way through to April 3rd. Uh, and we'll go which to, which means a- we'll get one episode airing in Q2, which will be intriguing to see whether that can give us an exact amount for the show. We have a pretty good estimate based on the Q1 numbers, but I'm kind of curious to see if, if it works out very similarly or not in the Q2 numbers, the press release for this uh, came out on January 12th. And it said basically that they were going to work with 12 charitable organizations and do this Facebook watch show and it'd be a tournament. And of course, what makes this so weird is that you have the challenge of saying, all right, it's a work sport. And yet we're giving charities money to 
different organizations based on a work tournament. And so it, it's a weird kind of combination of things where you're saying basically like, we're going to pretend this is a competition and you can win money for your charity. But at the same time, we've already kind of chosen who the charity that's going to win is. And uh, I was very surprised in the end that it was not the Boys and Girls Club of America. It was not the uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation or UNICEF or the Special Olympics or Susan G. Komen or even the Higher Heroes USA campaign that won. But rather, it was the uh, – or Girl Up, the uh, the UN Foundation uh, initiative. But rather, it was Rescue Dogs Rock – by Oscar and Miz. Didn't they end up winning the whole deal? They did. Yeah. So not I, I had originally argued you could do the booking based just on which charities they are and how WWE feels about it, especially when Connor's Cure was in there and had Alexa Bliss and Braun Strowman as the uh, the team there, which is a it's it's kind of a homegrown charity for them. And then B, uh, those are those are big stars for them. So I was very surprised that Rescue Dogs Rock, which did not seem to be on a charity level, nearly as high. Uh, certainly, Miz and Oscar. There was reason. There was political reasons to go that direction. But, but uh, very interesting. Um, and then, of course, the whole gimmick is that they were going to do a Facebook Live, Facebook Watch type event. It was going to be these short shows that were you know twenty thirty minutes long, and it created a host of uh, uh, issues when you think about it because it was only available in the United States. It had to be taped after SmackDown, but 205 Live was taped after SmackDown. So they had to then bump 205 Live back even further. It was um, going to be money being given to them by Facebook. And so it would be for the people who don't have the WWE Network and don't watch WWE television. It was a question of, you know, how many fans are out there? How many people? It's a question about, is this Facebook watch thing actually going to be a successful, you know, lean in, lean out as, as George Berrios talks about the different forms of media where you, you know there's there's the long form where you're watching it on your television screen and the the short form where you're watching it on your your tablet or your phone and this is kind of trying to bridge that gap and would Facebook watch work and then the other kind of programming that they had in that that Facebook watch kind of launch was all over the place you know uh, European basketball league stuff so that the Le, Le, Lavar Ball's children could be a big deal and kind of house hunter shows or other kind of reality programming. So this was this was a really weird kind of throw everything at the wall type strategy, and we weren't sure how successful WWE would be with this. Yeah, George Barris has said Facebook was happy with it. Uh, these episodes did between about two million and four million views per episode, uh, which is lower than like the Levar Ball show did by quite a wide margin. But the engagement was really high versus other Facebook Watch shows. So like the comments and the and I, I guess the likes and the reactions. Uh, and of course, we got that GIF of Rusev uh, typing on a computer with Lana. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I, I feel like the rise of Rusev Day corresponded quite a lot with Mix Match Challenge. On January twenty second, WWE um, uh, got a ruling in the very last piece of the royalties lawsuit. This was one of the big X factors for WWE that in many ways was underappreciated throughout the, the whole period here. Like everyone talked about the CM Punk Colt Cabana trial uh, when it was going on, but very few people were really talking about the Buff Bagwell, Scott Levy royalties lawsuit. And of the two, the one that would have the huge ramifications in the wrestling industry was actually probably the, 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 the royalties lawsuit much more than the defamation, a podcasting lawsuit. Um, because basically, Raven and Buff Bagwell were arguing, 
hey, we deserve royalties for our WWE Network appearances um, from our footage from specifically WCW mainly. And for evidence of this, you know, uh, Raven put forward his his 2000 WWE contract. Uh, Bagwell put forward all his WCW agreements. And then there was a lot of confusion because Bagwell ended up as like possibly the only guy who had this really weird contract with WWE with a company they created called WCW Incorporated, which was wholly owned by WWE. But from 2001 for basically it was going to be like the holding company for the guys that that got hired from WCW, but kind of as its own separate company. But in the end, I don't know if anyone else ever ended up in this bucket because he got hired and fired so quickly. He was like one of the few guys under this this thing. But it caused a lot of confusion, of course, because then they were able to keep referring to WCW, but they really meant WCW Incorporated, which was a WWF, WWE owned company. So it was a little sleight of hand if you actually were following it. Anyhow, in the end, um, basically, it did not go well for either Raven or uh, Scott Levy. They basically were found to be separate from the CT lawsuit because WWE was at one point kind of trying to put it all under the same umbrella. But they basically said, no, royalties are very different than this whole debate over um, a, a whole debate that was going on over the, the CTE or the brain injuries or in or, or other long term damage. But the challenge was, could these wrestlers prove, A, they had a right to get this money, and B, when WWE was being pressed, they were being pressed on things like, no, it's not impossible for you to come up with a royalty scheme. Why don't you show us how you would do this hypothetically? Because there's questions about, like, do you pay them on per hours watched? Do you pay it on based on who's in those matches? Do you just pay it based on who's on those episodes? Do you pay it on a flat fee over time? Because it, it's not a purchase model. So it's much harder to kind of decide how much do you credit do you give to everybody? And then what percentage of the, the royalties should you be holding back? In the end, they I wouldn't say they got them on a technicality, but they, they, they basically got them to say, look, Raven said that he was never going to sue again, and he's violating that, and so he can't sue. And the, the the whole, in the end, basically the Bagwell Levy thing, they agreed to just dismiss their lawsuit and agreed that they can't sue again. And so WWE dodged a big bullet. And then WWE kind of went in for the kill blow where they not said, not only are we going to accept the fact that, you know, we're getting a dismissal on this. And that was in December of that year. But we would like to get a verified bill of costs which was their way of saying, basically, we subpoenaed all these people. We had them talking. We had to fly. We had to transcript. We had to do all this stuff. And this cost us thousands of dollars. Now, the whole lawsuit cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. But they weren't able to go for the lawyer's fees. But they were able to say, well, you owe us the money for the, you know, the the, the depositions. And so there was a question about whether or not, basically, Buff and, and uh, Levy would be out, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars as almost a punishing tactic. You know, it's, it's what WWE does in its vindictive nature in these lawsuits is they don't just win. They oftentimes will go for a verified bill of costs. And they did this, uh, the Larry Zabisco living legend, and they've done it in other lawsuits. Uh, and in the end they were denied in January. So that kind of killed this lawsuit. Now, did it kill the ability of WWE to someone else to sue over royalties? Not exactly. Someone with a better standing could possibly do this, especially people who had contracts prior to a certain year. Um, it, it was the people who basically had the contracts, I think, between 
what is it, 99 and 2003 or 2002 are the ones that probably have the best shot at it because theirs, theirs doesn't really cover new media in a very good way. Uh, after that, they kind of cleared up the language in a way that made it much clearer that you wouldn't receive royalty fees. But there was this period of time where there's a group of guys that would have signed contracts that one time and never since. You know, um, some of them are in the CT lawsuit, like maybe Orion Sakota or something, um, KG Sakota. Uh, but, you know, there's a possibility that someone else will pursue this again. But in the end, it didn't go very far. It got bogged down in a lot of technical arguments, but WWE was losing some ground, I think, in the royalties lawsuit uh, because they were at least put to the point where they basically said, oh, it's impossible for us to come up with a scheme. And the judge said, nope, it's possible for you to come up with a scheme. Go back and do that. So uh, the, the, it's it was a big win for WWE in terms of not that it would have been a financial devastation to them, especially now with the money that they're going to get with these TV deals, but it was a big win from them in the sense that they have long fought that they would like to 100% own the media rights that they have. They would like to uh, treat these people as independent contractors, and they would like these contracts to basically be force majeure and always win and, and keep these wrestlers from being able to use these contracts against them in a in a devastating way and there's always the statute of limitations arguments on some of the stuff too but uh it was very very intriguing case very underreported case ended in kind of a, a dramatic sudden fashion as basically they were able to show that that levy was not supposed to be suing anymore and that bagwell's contract claims were no good so uh it wasn't necessarily that that WWE was found to have won the royalties it was so it was more that these were not really great clients for this case to stand on January 25th, something very unroyalty related happens. The new XFL will kick off in 2020. And quite frankly, we're going to give the game of football back to fans. I'm sure everyone has a lot of questions for me, but I also have a lot of questions for you. In fact, we're going to ask a lot of questions and listen to players, coaches. We're going to listen to medical experts, technology executives, members of the media, and anyone else who understands and loves the game of football. Well, most of They're not just going to listen to people. And I, I not, only noticed this after going back and, and getting these sound bites, but there's a... It's what he says next. I a, just noticed very, it too now that you mention it. There's a very uh, important verb that he uses when he talks about just what the XFL is going to do to professional football. In the way, we will present a shorter, faster-paced family-friendly, and easier-to-understand game. Don't get me wrong, it's still football, but it's professional football reimagined. Since we're launching in 2020, we have two years, which is plenty of time to really get it right. So you have it's going to be football reimagined. And where do we hear this verb reimagined later? WrestleMania weekend, when the uh, WWE does a business partner summit and they go through every executive does their little presentation and they have to uh, talk about how they're reimagining their part of business. Yeah, and they they more or less say it straight came from Vince's lips that he wanted them to quote reimagine everything, and um, that's fascinating to kind of see that that duality happening there where, you know, that's the WWE buzzword and suddenly it shows up in the XFL. And that's something that starts showing up here is I was following all the trademark stuff going on with XFL because WWE owned the XFL merchandise trademark. They own the entertainment services one. And there was all those questions about what was Vince going to call his new company 
what was he going to call this new league? Was it going to be called For the Love of Football? Was it going to be called the USFL? Um, was it going to be called something else? Alpha Entertainment presents the Extreme Football League. You know, what was it going to be? But uh, in the end, it was XFL and that WWE basically gave the rights that the, the trademarks that they had for XFL over to the private company owned by Vince McMahon. So not for investor gain, but the private company in exchange for, I think they said an equity position or something of that nature, which would open them up to, you know, possible ability for them to, to gain in the future, but uh, not have a financial risk. And then additionally, we heard stories that there was certain people involved in the WWE, you know, special events who were making calls on behalf of, of basically the XFL to call them up and say, Hey, wouldn't it be good for you to have an XFL team in your, your city of Orlando? And by the way, I'm also calling to talk to you about WrestleMania sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the XFL gets announced. Vince McMahon gives a very, um, open-ended press conference. And by that, I mean very light on details with the exception of the crazy XFL rap and the crazy XFL press release written in the worst font I've ever seen professional communicate corporate communications written in. Was there, was there an XFL rap? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's this whole song they have where it's like, you know, more hits, more smack, you know, there's a whole poem rap thing that they did as part of their video package. And then they sent out a press release with the words from that written. Uh, are you going to force me to pull it up or are you, are you going to go looking for it now to uh, put it in? This is the future. This is not the past. This is the future and the future moves fast. This is quicker, simpler rules, reform. This is your game, safer. This is football, reborn. This is gaming and fantasy. This is padded, roulette. Make a trade, make a team, make a move, make a bet. This is fans above all. This is maximum action. Let's store more ball, fewer infractions. This begins in 2020. The future is near. More access, more everyone, more everything here. This is our moment, our story to tell. This is history begun. This is the XFL. That's the one (laughs) that was the XFL announcement. And then not long after that, of course, he gets scooped by the fact that they're launching a different league. Uh, Was it the AFL? What did they call that other league? Just trying to remember why, why it's called that. Oh, Alliance of American football. That's why it is. That's a terrible name, but Mm. um, yep, that was, that was already announced and they are, they're going to start a year earlier. And so there's all these questions about, what is this XFL going to do? You know, there was a lot of, we're going to keep the WWE out of it this time. Uh, if you listen to the Lagana interview that we did last week or two weeks ago on the patron edition. And if you, if you haven't heard, it's a terrific interview we did with uh, Dave Lagana about everything about the NWA ring of honor. Um, his, he, he told some WWE stories. And one of the WWE stories he told is about getting re, you know, like, like, uh, chewed out by Vince McMahon when he had John Cena mention the XFL in a rap at WrestleMania one year, because Vince is still very uh, sensitive on that subject for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we heard about, you know, the amount of money that Vince is thinking about putting in this league. What did ESPN recently report? $500 million over the first three seasons. 
Yeah. And of course, the whole theory behind this is sports TV rights are hot. And um, you even see people like Bellator, you know, out there signing, what is it, nine digit deals. So th- there's this idea that someone out there is going to pay a bunch of money for extra football and that's going to subsidize something like this. And yet they're willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. Vince is ready to spend. Vince is already guaranteed his commissioner is going to get 20 to $30 million. And, you know, he's, he's out there to spend in some ways to make this a success. It's, it's questionable whether he's spending to, you know, get big talent. Cause I think he said something like he wants the, uh, the salary to be around $75,000 which is a respectable salary, but not a, a NFL salary. Well, it's better than the uh, so, NXT developmental contracts. It is somewhat better. Yeah. Yeah. You could argue the upside or the downside might not be nearly as good. Yeah. So very different, very different, you know, and I, I don't really feel like those are people in the same pool for the most part. You know, do I want to go to NXT or do I want to go play in Vince McMahon's league? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would hope that there's people with very different, kind of beliefs in themselves of what what it means to be a star and a wrestler and whatnot and the people want to go be a football player but Mm -hmm. there's some similarities i'm sure Mm -hmm. the mojos of this world as you would say Mm -hmm. but yeah there was a lot of talk at this that vince was saying he doesn't want to be the front man Mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk about vince basically um uh not sure about the details on things you know how are they going to make things safer uh, there was a lot of debate about whether there was collusion with the White House over kind of a, uh, I think football players should stand arguments. No collusion. And and the debate over whether or not, you know, this is a big deal that, you know, is being pushed. Uh, just the way things have been, I in no way would be surprised if at some point there was a White House treat, or I say White House, a Donald Trump tweet mm-hmm. about the XFL in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I, I made a, a, a bit of a conspiracy over like, you know, look at when, uh, the trademarks for alpha entertainment started happening. Look, look at when, when some of the things that, when some of the gears started moving, it's around the same time that, that Trump started tweeting about the NFL and, and the players kneeling and all that. Uh, he said that he did not even talk to Linda McMahon about this. Of course, Linda McMahon is a member of the cabinet. She's the uh, small business administrator for the white house. Uh, he says in this press conference that, no, he did not even talk to Linda McMahon about this decision to relaunch the XFL. Uh, he would not outright say that he that there would be a rule requiring players to stand during the anthem. Uh, but he all but, all but said there would be that. no criminals, right? You can't have any kind of criminal activity against you? It's about the quality of the human being, which you can read a number of ways. Um, and he said that there will be rules. Every time somebody asked about the, the kneeling thing, he said there's going to be rules. That's all he would say, which made it sound like there's going to be a rule that you're going to have to stand during, during the national anthem. And, oh, well, the, you can go on social media and Facebook and Twitter and things of that nature, and you can you know, say what you want. But politics are going to be kept completely off the field, he said. And, of course, this is supposed to be happening in, what, three years? And so 2020. It's, it's going to be, a, yeah, 2020, I guess two years now. Yeah. But it, it's just that kind of big question of in two years from now, will this really be where the narrative's at? Or will this be completely Kneeling. a footnote of, of what they're doing? You know, if his whole deal is let's shorten the games, let's keep it hot and fast. Who knows? There might not even be a, a entrance at the beginning here. And for people to be like, well, no, he said there would be. Vince McMahon will go back on his word. Don't you worry about that. He'll go back on what word? That that just because he said one thing two years ago and what he says today, that doesn't mean that his uh, 
that because he says something once it's written in stone and he'll stay there forever mm-hmm. i still think kneeling's going to be an issue in 2020 if 2020 among among all the other years is probably going to be very politically toxic but you know i agree i just wonder if in their bid to quote make the games faster we'll see you know that is an example of how they'll try to argue hey we're trying to speed things up and so there'll still be an anthem played at the arenas but there won't be it won't be shown on television and in some ways it, it kind of takes some of the fuel out of the fire yeah january 28th ronda rousey debuts at the royal rumble um big deal for wwe uh i think as as time goes on here we begin seeing how big of a deal this is in terms of uh, the perception and the media control. Uh, what you and I notice, because we listen to the press conferences, we watch the Business Partner Summit, we look at press releases. WWE is going out of their way to mention Ronda Rousey every time, even to the point that when Charlotte Flair gets to do a talk with Michelle Wilson at, with at, at the Needham and Company uh, event hosted by Laura Martin, like one of her first questions that they ask her is, Charlotte, how do you feel about Ronda Rousey? And it's just one of those where I, I understand why they're doing it. But I just I, I do feel for sometimes, you know, a wrestler where if your first question that you're being asked is tell us about this other person who's decided to do what you do and why we're really excited to talk about them. She was at the WrestleMania press conference as well. She, If you remember, she did that kind of awkward stare off with Triple H. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they bring her everywhere and they talk about her everywhere. And January 28th was the first time we saw something with her at the Rumble. The rumors are true. Ronda Rousey is here. Stephanie, what do you know about this? I'm speechless, Paul. I mean, you got to know something about this. I know what I'm looking at. At WrestleMania 31, you would have run in with her. Stephanie McMahon on commentary there, I think, finding out why she did not follow her in her father's footsteps at the announcer's booth, but there it is. Vince McMahon being surprised by his own angles in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm looking at. Yep. Yep. Uh, So exciting time for WWE. Big win, obviously, with UFC going through its contract negotiations around the same time to kind of confirm that Ronda was moving on. Of course, Ronda had already at this point, I think kind of announced her, her retirement from fighting. And of course was doing movie work, but obviously never say never, especially when you're a drawing card like Ronda. Mm -hmm. So uh, how important do you think Ronda was to the TV rights negotiations? I kind of touched on that um, in the preamble to this, not realizing that was going to be our next point, but what did you think about it? I I guess I think she was a, a big deal. I don't know. It's hard to extract. Like, well, what would happen if Ronda Rousey wasn't there? Do they get this? Uh, what do they end up saying? Two point six x increase uh, in US TV rights. It's probably a little less than that. Um, it looks like I tweeted at the, at the time this happened that uh, they're showing TV networks that they'll have Ronda Rousey long term. They can grab mainstream headlines. Uh, and that was a big talking point was that this was not we got Ronda Rousey for three months. Mm-hmm. This was a Ronda Rousey will be signed to a long term deal with this company 
And when you sign a WWE TV deal, you will be getting Ronda Rousey as part of that package. Didn't we hear Fox even played into this? So this is something that came out in the Hollywood Reporter is that uh, when they were having their meeting, when WWE and uh, Fox was having their meeting, they started off the meeting with this big picture of Ronda Rousey you know, holding Triple H up in this fireman's carry from WrestleMania 34. And when you listen to the, the conference calls, like the one they did after WrestleMania, they only mention four or five people. And those names are Ronda Rousey, a little bit about Triple H. Um, Daniel Bryan came up at one point. But I don't think they even said the word Roman Reigns once mm-hmm. in the entire uh, conference call. And you just see her. She She's a very big get for them. Uh, they're very lucky, I would say, that she seems to have a desire to do this. Because I don't think this would be a situation where you could use money to motivate them to go into this direction. Especially the kind of schedule she appears to be trying to work. You know, showing up at MSG last night and working. It's certainly not a Lesnar schedule. It, it's its not a... Um, it's not a, a, a Seth Rollins or Dean Ambrose schedule, but it's it's certainly not a Lesnar schedule. No, it's it's more dates than, than Lesnar, but far fewer dates than the average full-timer. Yeah. Um, on February 8th, uh, Berrios and... Oh, actually, and I, we should also mention, the, the Rumble is also interesting because you have both Nakamura and Asuka winning, right? The women's Rumble yes. and the men's Rumble. And that, that's pretty significant when you think about kind of their their international talent expansion, in my mind, that, you know, you'd go that far in on two stars that literally made their names originally in Japan. Don't neither of them speak very strong English and are true international stars and not just stars that are being chosen for a, a simple storyline, in my opinion. You know, it's not a, a fluke win, you know, like great colleague comes out and uh, eliminates somebody and, and it's a fluke win type sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was they were put over strong mm-hmm. as big stars that would have big matches going into WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. So I, I just found that really interesting. I think I think that's a really significant um, portion of the international expansion narrative that we're continuing to see in WWE. February 8th. Um, Q4 report comes out, and there's a big announcement in that. What is what is that big uh, organizational announcement? That Michelle Wilson and George Barrios are co-presidents now? They're co-presidents, and they're being appointed to the board of directors, which uh, was something I'd always noticed, that they were not a member of the BOD. You know, Stephanie and, and Triple H were on the BOD, and George and Michelle were not. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they're now co-president, and this title has been used before, president of WWE. I think Linda McMahon was the president of WWE at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to mention that, you know, they really see these two as surrogates for Vince McMahon to the investing community. And they're basically elevating that title to put them on very firm, similar footing. And ever since then, we've seen even more events where... Vince isn't there. So the call, the most recent call, the uh, media rights call, Vince McMahon was not even a part of that media rights call. Right. It was just George and Michelle. Right. Or at least he didn't speak on it. Yeah. And, and he was not advertised on the call either. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so like this, this upcoming quarterly report, they did specifically mention Vince McMahon will be on it. Mm-hmm. But the, the media rights call, they didn't. And it was, a, I think it's a big deal that we're seeing more and more of George and Michelle's, you know, basically being 
in some ways let off the leash, right? Mm-hmm. Where what they say is doctrine for WWE. And we're seeing more and more of the reporting lines for the rest of the organization go to either a George or a Michelle. And in some ways, Vince McMahon having less and less people reporting up to him. Um, other changes that we saw going on with uh, the the time here was, of course, um, that there was all these financial changes. They, they were breaking down. Um, they're going to now report media, live events, consumer products. And if you, like Brent and I have, have gone back through the last 20, 25 years of WWE filings, the one thing you realize is that they update their reporting structure every four to five years. And when I say update, they take the 20 some segments that they have and they restructure it based on what their strategy for a business is. So venue merchandise sometimes shows up as a consumer products thing. Sometimes it shows up as a live event thing. Uh, magazine publishing suddenly becomes part of the digital media uh, section. Uh, of course, when the WWE Network launched, they got rid of pay-per-views and TV as a single line and just turned it into a big thing called media. Um, and, and now they're even restructuring it to start talking about things like core content rights fees, which was meant to be raw and SmackDown fees, but excludes mixed match challenge and total Bellas and things like that. Um, they also created a new adjusted OEBDA definition very quietly so that if you actually looked at OEBDA from a few months ago and then this latest OEBDA, you would have noticed about a $20 million difference. Uh, they took a different uh, reckon- revenue recognition standard, which is the most boring thing you can possibly talk about, but it's relevant because quarter over quarter comparisons only change because you're not receiving revenue and recognizing it at the same time. So sometimes revenue looks like it's down when it's really flat or up. And of course, that's a footnote that, you know, someone who's casually looking at WWE isn't going to get. But they, they, they tried very hard to explain basically, instead of taking money in a big lump sum, they would try to estimate out each quarter how much they're getting of that money and take it. Which means at certain points of the year, you look like you're either better or worse than you were a year ago. After a year of doing this, you should be, uh, similar apples to apples. Mm-hmm. Um, they also redistributed their cost. Uh, for corporate and other to the segments. And this is really important because in the past, what would happen is they have this segment called corporate and other, and they have cost lines associated with that. There's a tiny amount of revenue also associated with corporate and other, but for the most part, it's cost. And this cost line just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they explain it a lot of different ways. Sometimes they say, well, we invested in our data analytics department. That's costing us more money. Sometimes they say, oh, well, we increased our headcount. Or, hey, we're spending a lot on lawsuits. Or sometimes they say, oh, we invested in this thing called the Performance Center. And that's going to cost us a lot of money. And then suddenly you have a, a different line over here where you say, oh, here's some NXT touring numbers. But they don't ever associate that performance center, those contracts, those talent talent development costs, all that stuff necessarily with the NXT live event touring numbers. So people always ask, hey, is NXT profitable? And we say it's very hard to know. So what they actually started to do is to say instead of having a big, giant slush fund where we put all these costs and we don't really allocate them out to everything. We're going to allocate almost all of these costs out to everybody as much as we can. And we'll do it on a basis. I I believe they said they would do it on a basis of revenue where they would basically say, if you're 10% of the revenue, you'll get about 10% of the costs. If it's this unallocated amount for the stuff we can allocate. Yeah, we'll put it towards that. 
Um, and it's it's a relevant thing because it's going to really change the way that the profit margins per division is going to look. And it would also raise an interesting question about how you allocate TV rights money out when you think about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Because TV rights are going to go up a ton. And yet, if the cost basis on that is really not going up a ton, but the allocation method that they're using might actually drive a lot more allocation to the TV d- division. Again, this is nitty gritty, nerdy financial stuff. But I think it's really interesting when people try to ask these other questions that, you know, more fans are going to care about, like, is NXT profitable? And the reason it's so hard for us to answer is getting this nitty gritty stuff to understand how cost accounting works. Does that make sense, Brandon? What do you consider the, the, the expenses of NXT? Like, that's the question that would need to be answered. And, and, and it's way too boring and way too difficult to answer those questions. Like, what, what are their expenses? Is the entire PC their expense? Or are we just talking about, like, the cost of the live events and whether the live, the live events are probably making money. The live events are almost certainly profitable. But how much of the performance center should be counted as NXT's expense? I, I, I don't know. And, and talent development contracts, too. They are going to the slush fund as well, where all of the quote-unquote NXT contracts are kind of in that corporate and other division. All those training camps where they go to Saudi Arabia or India or whatever, how much of that do you you amortize or you count against it, you know? Because those aren't cheap. Those aren't free. All those trainers that work down there. You know, Shawn Michaels' uh, salary, technically now you could consider a performance center cost. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the fact that I'm sure Steve Austin still gets a paycheck. (laughs) That's That's a corporate and other cost. So it's an interesting thing, but I just kind of people always wonder, why is it hard to to figure this stuff out? And that's why it's hard to figure this stuff out is you have to come up with a a way to consistently uh, do costs over time. And the other challenge is they keep changing their reporting methodology and that that masks our ability to deep dig into things. They even went as far as they got rid of what I call the worldwide segment revenue reporting, which was one of my favorite you know, it, it, how, how geeky does this sound to say I have a favorite part of the 10Q reporting? But I do. I love the worldwide revenue segment reporting where they broke out. Here's what we're doing in North America. Here's what we're doing in Latin America and South America. Here's what we're doing in Asia and Pacific and other areas. Um, and then uh, here's what we're doing in Europe. Here's what we do in the UK. And it was fascinating because you could really get a good sense for, you know, what drove different segment growth in each area of the world over time like the uk one year went up by like 20 million dollars what do you think that was tv rights so you can really clearly see a one-to-one relationship and and i think that's always fascinating to me um but and i was really disappointed to see it kind of go away when they restated their money here specifically because they started talking about saudi arabia we'll get into in a few minutes but uh that's going to be harder for us to track now that they got rid of that so I always wonder, you know, the conspiracy hound in you always says, hmm, such and such goes away and then such and such gets introduced. Do you think the two are related? Because by no means is anyone being surprised that they're announcing a big Saudi Arabia deal. But while it's in the works, maybe there's someone saying, hey, we should do everything we can to make sure we can obfuscate uh, exactly how much this deal is going to net us. Uh, Barrios showed up on Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Uh, do you want to maybe just play a, a quick clip or, or mention some stuff that he talked about on that? Uh, he was on Jim, Jim, Jim Cramer's uh, Mad Money on January 19th, and he went through, I've got three big talking points that are, I think, are like this, the central core tenets of the George Barrios Sports Entertainment philosophy. So first of all, 
He goes through basically the history of sports entertainment. Numbers are staggering here. Yeah, so I mean, let's talk about broader context. Right. Vince McMahon buys the business 35 years ago. It is a Northeast touring ticketing business. Right. That's it, right. right? 10 years later, it's touring across the U.S. Another 10 years, it's a global media company. And today we're one of the leaders in digital, social, and direct-to-consumer. So yeah, when you look at WWE, we've got 850 social media followers. Uh, uh, More uh, than any uh, sports brand in the world. anyone else have that. Okay. And then he, he always talks about how he's tearing the content. You've sliced and diced in every, and you make money for everybody. Well, you, you hit it. And the slicing and dicing, you know, we call it tearing the content. Right, right. A lot of people take the content and put it all over this, all the different platforms, yes, and yes. it cannibalizes. Right. right. What we do is we say we're going to have certain content for pay television, five hours live every week. We're on yep. SmackDown, 260 hours a year. Then we're going to create about 600 hours for YouTube, Facebook, our own and operated, different content. Right. And then we're going to do about three, 400 hours on our direct-to-consumer network to super serve our most passionate fans. So all those different platforms, different content. That's why it raises all boats. George Barrios' understanding of why pro wrestling in general gets over and gets over in so many regions and so many different cultures, of course, it's because it's the hero's journey. I see acceleration right here. Yeah, look, we have this unique element. I, t I was t talking about India. So India is the number one country in terms of consuming WWE video in the world. Was that possible? Yeah, well, t I'll tell you why it's possible. Two things. First, storytelling. You went to Harvard, right? I'm sure... English lit, yeah, English lit yeah. class. You yeah, read Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Guy. Not Shakespeare. Joseph Campbell wrote The Monomyth. The hero's my journey. Loves, my daughter loves Joseph Campbell. Amazing. Right? Yeah. He said every culture throughout human history tells stories the same way. Right. Heroes, enemies, overcome. So John Cena, Katniss Everdeen, Luke Skywalker, it's the hero's journey. Right. The second thing is our sport centers around the ring. It's the simplest thing. Right. Everyone right. understands it. That's why India is our number one market in terms of consumption. Well, look, I want to congratulate you. I didn't, I didn't become a believer. It took me too long. But yeah. thank heavens, I got people in ahead of time. And that was, that was January 19th with Jim Cramer, sort of talking about how he didn't really believe in WWE stock at first, but uh, now he does, and he really want, wants to get people behind it. At, on that day, on January 19th, the stock was trading at $34. And, of course, it's more than doubled since then. Yeah, and... It's interesting to hear like the hero's journey argument because there's also the argument to say, well, what when we talked to Dave Lagana about, well, how was it when the NWA went to China? You know, was it uh, championship wrestling from Hollywood? That guy, I think, was promoting the tour, but they, they went and they, they did shows in China and his feedback was, wow, they they don't really seem to like the in-ring conflict. <laughs> they kind of like the dives and the uh, exciting stuff, but some of the other things they did not care for. And it's, I want to call it a rebuke because I, I, I do agree. Storytelling is always going to work. And Hey, if you want to learn more about Joseph Campbell, you know, it's on Netflix right now. What's that? The whole Joseph Campbell power of myths, PBS special. You can watch it all. It's on Netflix right now. Uh, it's, it's the series that they did. I think it was in the, um, uh, the eighties and the nineties. And, uh, it, it just him, Joseph Campbell giving his whole philosophy. And like, it's a little funny to hear George come to the Joseph Campbell train, because if you know anything about the development of star Wars, it, it was basically like, you know, Joseph Campbell one-on-one and the, the, to the whole point of like being consulted to on how to do things and, and make all the development. And so it's, it's a 30, 40 year old idea that, hey, let's steal this and put it into our entertainment venue. And so 
it's more like something you'd read in a history book about entertainment rather than a cutting edge philosophy book about the, the, the idea of wrestling. But I can understand the, the desire to say, Hey, here's why wrestling's okay. Um, and it's going to work in this other country. And, and to a degree, it's always going to work in a certain way. Uh, but I, I'm just, I, I think it would be hilarious or interesting if someone ever actually challenged some of these people to say, well, here's how it was received in this culture. Doesn't this go against your argument? But of course, that's, you know, really calling people out on their BS at times. And it's their job to to uh, frustrate it. And it's our job to investigate. Do you, do you think there's wrestling cultures that don't fit well with, with the hero's journey uh, analogy story, whatever it is, myth? Well, you have to argue, A, are they actually telling a hero's journey story? You know, if you boil everything down enough, you can always make it seem like you're you're making it work. And that's the idea of the monomyth. But at the same time, if you're actually looking at the elements of what goes into the monomyth, I could argue that some of what wrestling is doing is not that monomyth. So, like, what, what's one example? You're really putting me on the spot here. But um, just the whole idea of how does a hero have to um, have their initial success and their failure and their, their redemption and their call to action and who are the, the people that are supposed to go on the journey with the hero and what are the impediments that are supposed to happen to the hero in that? You know, I, I think it's being boiled down as if it's it's a very simple story. And in fact, what Joseph Campbell's thesis was very different than that. Also, you could argue something about the disillusionment with heroes, too, is a part of the story. And of course, that's not what they're getting into. Are you talking about Roman Reigns? <laughs> no, I'm talking more about the, the, the Dune myth of, you know, all all power corrupts type idea. Well, I but um. And then, you know, it's just funny to me, too, is go back to the cu cultures that have tried to introduce wrestling over time. There's stories from the 90s during the Attitude Era about, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's this Asian country that was the first one to make happiness index a big part of their country. What is that? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? A happiness index in, a, in, a, in an Asian country? Yes. What is the country that is the ha that is the biggest deal about that? Um Bhutan. Bhutan. That's it. Yeah, Bhutan makes a big deal about it. They're, they're right between India. They're landlocked between Tibet and India and China. And uh, I, I remember reading a story once about like how I think wrestling came to Bhutan and how like basically the culture freaked out about it because they were just like, oh, no, we have people like now imitating these wrestlers and causing violence. And mm -hmm. we don't like this in our society. And, you know, it's, it's the natural kind of push and pull that happens whenever. But I always think that, that that's the piece of it is that, like, my parents don't like wrestling. You think mm -hmm. my mother enjoys seeing people hit each other? Mm -hmm. The idea that it's this universal thing that everyone gets into. I don't know if that's true. I, I think it's it, it, that certain conflict oriented storytelling and violence and physicality interests some people. And it's not going to interest other people much in the same way football doesn't interest me or soccer doesn't interest me. Yeah, I, I think what Barros is trying to say there is that. You know why doesn't why doesn't the NFL work in other countries? Because nobody understands the game, and I, I don't think he's necessarily saying that. Oh, everybody will love wrestling, but that a wide range of cultures and a wide range of people understand it easily and uh, get more easily interested in it that versus other sports because it's a simple sport to understand, or it's not a sport, you know, whatever it is, it's a simple thing to understand. The competition should make sense. Yes, I, I think what would be fascinating is to hear stories of. Uh, them getting graded on their Cambillian storytelling every week. Yes. Where they said, 
yeah, okay, you decided to do this. Does this make sense in the greater arc that you have created around the hero's journey for this person? Yeah. I- and also, it would be interesting to say, like, okay, have you actually clearly defined which people are the heroes, which people are the sidekicks, and which people are the enemies? They're clearly defined to the CEO who makes the creative decisions. Yeah, but I don't know if the CEO actually cares about the hero's journey. I, th- I think he cares about it in his own internal logic, and he wants the audience to accept that logic. But they won't, and he doesn't know how to make them accept it. And he won't yeah. uh, He won't make certain concessions. Because you could argue that th- there are actually probably really good examples from from like the classic literature of heroes that are being rejected by their people. Ooh, and going mo- deeper into the whole history of like, how do you get someone like that over? And usually it's you have to humble them incredibly. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have any examples of like heroes in, in classical literature that didn't get over? I am an economics and mathematics major. I studied uh, the hero's journey a lot more for improv mm. um, because in narrative improv, specifically for the the um, the the uh, the Johnstonian type of improv that I was taught to do, mm. is a lot more narrative driven, and so Joseph Campbell plays well for that. Uh, and I have Hero with a Thousand Faces in my house, and I have read um, not all of it, but some of it. Um, but no, I, I've I struggle with it because I think it's I think it's it's like a screenwriter or anyone else where they want to say, "Hey, I'm telling this epic story," but I, I'm I'm still always struggling with you know a, a porn movie with a Shakespearean plot does not make it Shakespearean necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I picked these three points out the. Uh... George Barry was talking about how sports entertainment went from this regional company to this global media company and tearing the content that is having a pay, pay TV where Raw and SmackDown are very expensive properties, an OTT service where you put your best content, our playoffs, you put that on direct consumer, and uh, then you have, I don't know, various clips and, and, and other junk food on, on your uh, AVOD platforms like YouTube and Facebook. Um, so those two things. And then the hero's journey, number three. These are things that I've heard over and over again from George Berrios. Uh, I think he's fairly sincere in, in believing them. That's a sales pitch. And uh, like these are big big deal things that I think are driving WWE that, uh, I don't know. It's, they're driving WWE narrative. They're driving WWE business. I'm still not convinced they're driving WWE creative. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that either. Um, but and, and that's what that's my challenge is that I wish it was. I wish that was more of a unifying trend because it's meaningful to me if I actually see it being being expressed through the creative versus just being expressed through the marketing message. Mm-hmm. Like it's one thing to say we care about women, but it's another thing to see that on your television screen. Mm-hmm. So that that's where I, I get challenged at times is that I, I do feel like George and Michelle, George more than Michelle oftentimes say one thing, but they don't necessarily have the, the means to back it up yeah. based on the actual product that's being produced. Because I don't think Michelle, they're deeply engaged as long-time wrestling Michelle, fans. I, I feel like she's on that cusp. Because you do see her. Remember, she was at the Royal Rumble this year. Mm-hmm. She sat right behind the announce crew to mm-hmm. watch the Women's Royal Rumble. Mm-hmm. I do think that Michelle Wilson is very passionate about the idea that she is part of bringing a different version of female competition of professional wrestling to this organization. Mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that. But do they George, have- I think, is passionate about WWE going around the world 
and having an international depth. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think either of them have any sort of background or, I mean, they've been working for the company for almost 10 years and they still don't. I don't, I don't think they have any sort of background or like real passion about the creative or like what, what are some of their favorite storylines in wrestling history or I don't think they have any understanding on that. But, but then again, I've they heard don't. Michelle talk about women, women storylines some, but no, no, for the most part, you don't ever hear that. Yeah. I mean, it's a, and on the other hand, of course, they don't have any real input apparently about that. But I think, I think you've got to understand something about wrestling that I don't, I don't get any messages that they understand. As far as like understanding what wrestling is creatively, what really connects, what actually connects with with fans, I don't think they have a great understanding of that beyond a general corporate business perception of like demographics and audience and surveys and numbers. I don't know if you heard the interview I did with Sean Reddy this week. No, um, where I did I, I called it the Espresso of WrestleNomics. It's forty five minutes, mm. and it's me shoving as much information as I can in forty five minutes. And one thing I mentioned, and it's very much on that line, is that what alarms me, because he asked me specifically about what do I think about the organizational depth and capabilities of WWE executives like Michelle and George. And my point was, what worries me is that um, Vince McMahon, for all his faults, would always go back to core metrics and say, well, what is the attendance like? What are the ratings like? And the reason those things mattered is because I think he recognized we have to create new audiences. We have to engage those audiences and we have to um, use them as fundamental reflectors for us about what's working or not working. Let's put the Roman Reigns push to the side and talk about the longer history of Vince McMahon, mm-hmm. which is he will be a very honest person on these conference calls. He will describe events as swing and a miss. He will sometimes be brutally honest to the point that the market overreacts because they're not used to a CEO who just says it like it is. He is a con man. He's a promoter. But at the same time, he recognizes to have longevity in wrestling, you have to worry about fundamentals. And I always say what worries me about the next generation of these executives is that they lack exactly what you said there, that knowledge or belief that to make wrestling successful, you need to worry about X, Y, or Z. These are not... This isn't Oibda. This isn't revenue. This isn't, but this is about the core desire for people. And so, yes, I like that George says his three main ideas for the new TV contract was deepen the engagement, find new fans and get more money. But that idea of deepen engagement or find new fans is so poorly defined at times. It makes you wonder, would you care if WWE tomorrow decided they were going to focus more on, on, script development and scripted comedies and dramas the way that Michelle did. Cause to me, it seems like to them, that's fine. That's a okay pivot for this company. Whereas as a wrestling company, fundamentally, they always should have to have a concern about professional wrestling. Mm-hmm. And when you let that get away from you, it will burn you very badly. And Vince McMahon in some ways is part of the glue for that. And that's why I think Paul and, and Stephanie will contribute to that Paul more than Stephanie possibly. But uh, it's just that question of, like, as all these executives, all these outsiders come in and take these very powerful roles, are those fundamentals of wrestling promotion, creation, fan retention, and the fundamentals of what professional wrestling is in any way being represented here? Or is it just going to become an entertainment media conglomerate and it's going to fade away and that's going to be their downfall? I, I think the, the big thing that they never talk about, which is the thing that has historically always driven professional wrestling businesses into a boom except for in this particular business in this particular era is star power 
And I think that's something Vizic Man has been pretty bad at, at doing, creating stars over the last 10, 20 years, maybe before that. Um, and I don't think it's it's something that they never want to talk about. If they're aware of it at all, they and I think they don't want to talk about it because it presents a, a risk factor or it sort of like lessens the brand. If like if all it takes to, to create a, a boom in this thing is a big star, well, that, that, cre- that creates a risk because this person could get injured, this person could go away, this person could, could you know could do something that uh, you know we don't have them around anymore. And I don't think they want to talk about that, but I think that's that's what would really bump their business even more. But then look, you know. 2.6x with uh, you know Roman Reigns floundering around doing whatever he's doing, so it looks like everything's going well. Absolutely. Well, if you're enjoying this WrestleNomics uh, PhD program that we put up for free, uh, we're going to continue this next week. It's a two-part episode. It's a cliffhanger. However, we are new media here at WrestleNomics, and that we we want to offer some people the option to binge. We don't want you to have to wait a week to get the conclusion to this cliffhanger. So all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You sign up and you'll be able to get part two immediately. Otherwise, you got to wait there for a, for a week. And next Monday, it'll drop in your feed and you can hear part two of this episode. But you sign up right now, you can get the conclusion of this episode. More sound bites, more analysis, more discussion. Plus all the other premium content we're doing every week, which is going to include a whole other new episode that we're recording today. Talking about New Japan, talking about Brock Lesnar, talking about Ring of Honor, talking about going viral, talking about hot dog eating contests, something that I am passionate about. Vig and Brandon might not know anything about it, but I can trust you that meeting Mookie does. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash WrestleNomics. Hear part two of this episode, plus hear the bonus audio that we're recording on other subjects as both Brandon and I watched the G1 special from USA yesterday uh, on Access Television. We've got a lot to say about it. So we hope you'll tune in. We hope you'll enjoy. Thank you for supporting the show. And to our patrons, thank you for subsidizing this free show. And please enjoy your part two, Early Served. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 